This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. I'm Tom Scrag and I'm here today with Dr Anna Watts from the University of Amsterdam. So welcome and thanks for agreeing to talk to us today. You're welcome, it's nice to be here. Let's start relatively gently. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your research interests are? Sure, so I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, My interest is in neutron stars that explode. Um, I work on both thermonuclear explosions on neutron stars, which is a very well-observed phenomenon but still has lots of interesting mysteries for us to solve. Um, And I also work on magnetic explosions, kind of similar to solar flares that are occurring on neutron stars. I'm interested in the astrophysics of how the explosions occur, because explosions are fun. And I'm also interested in using the explosions. One of the things we want to do is to peer deep inside the neutron star and understand the dense matter nuclear physics that happens inside, and we can use the explosions to do that. Okay, that sounds really interesting. I'm, I'm intrigued, and I'm looking forward to your talk later today, because that's, that's kind of my interest area as well. Um, but neutron stars exploding, now does the whole star explode, or just part of it or an explosion on it or what happens so it's just for the thermonuclear explosion case it's just the surface layers um, so a neutron star has a kind of a, a dense nuclear matter core and then a solid crust about one to two kilometers thick now on top of that crust you can build up an ocean of materials so neutron stars have oceans but you should never go surfing on them um, because they tend to be made of things like hydrogen and helium which in many cases they are pulling essentially from a companion star. So they're sitting next to some poor unfortunate star who's having its material pulled into the gravitational field of the neutron star and that material is settling down on the surface and it makes a lovely hydrogen helium ocean. Hydrogen and helium, when you put it on the surface of a neutron star, it's hot and it's dense and it undergoes thermonuclear burning, which is why you don't want to go surfing or swimming in these things. Sometimes that hydrogen helium is is nice and well behaved and it just settles gradually down and gradually gets incorporated into the crust. Um, But sometimes those thermonuclear reactions can be extremely unstable. And so what we see is the whole ocean layer of the star actually exploding and that gives us a bright burst of x-rays which we can go and observe with space telescopes. Okay, interesting. Is this... um, Is the the fluid layer, the, the ocean... Um, across the hull of a neutron star or is it like a, a band around the centre or just patches? We think it's across the whole of the neutron star um, but again it's, it's pretty thin so the hydrogen helium layer on the outside is just a few metres thick then you go into the deep ocean which is maybe a few hundred metres thick which would consist of things like carbon for example and you go into heavier elements as you go deeper down so yeah it's a very very thin ocean layer across the whole surface of the star Okay, the neutron stars. So why hasn't the hydrogen and helium converted to neutrons or protons in the hydrogen? So it will do as it goes deeper and deeper down. So basically, as you pour more material onto the star, the hydrogen burns to helium, the helium burns to carbon, and the carbon then processes to heavier elements. It gradually gets incorporated into the neutron star crust, becomes more and more neutron rich. And then as material goes down through the crust and gets pushed down, basically, eventually it will dissolve into a kind of neutron and proton fluid. So that happens in the interior of the star, but these outermost layers are quite low density. So it hasn't quite got to the stage yet where that could happen. 
Right, okay. And this is part of the accretion process, presumably, in a binary system? Yeah, that's right. So we see well over 100 stars that have these kind of thermonuclear explosions, so all accreting neutron stars. Can you give us an idea of how big these explosions are? I mean, numbers of hydrogen bombs, or is that just a, 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 a silly question? Uh, no, so we'd be talking about, gosh, a factor of maybe... 10 to the 17 or so larger than a hydrogen bomb. Wow, okay. Pretty yep. big. Yep, that's fortunate it's on the star and yes. not anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how do you observe them then? Right, so they basically because they're very, very hot, these explosions, we see them via bursts of x-rays. So you have to use space telescopes. Fortunately for our health on Earth, we, we don't get x-rays directly through the Earth's atmosphere. It's kind of frustrating for astronomers, um, but it's much better for us as people that this doesn't happen. Um, so we have to send telescopes into space to do that. Um, so we have to launch them. Um, so we tend to see these sort of x-ray or perhaps with gamma-ray space telescopes. Right. I, I see from the notes I've got, because I went on the web and had a look, um, that you, you you are involved, you have been involved with quite a few space-based te- space telescopes. I'll start that again. I see from the notes I, I've taken from the, the web that you have been involved with quite a few space-based telescopes. Are you still involved? Is that an ongoing thing? Is Was that a deliberate choice? It was. So I, I started my, my PhD research working in, in pure theory, um, computing things for gravitational wave observations. So that was my background, gravitational wave physics. Um, I then moved to NASA, to the Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, and my research had been on vibrations of neutron stars, different types of oscillations they could happen. And there were interesting observations in the X-ray during thermonuclear explosions of potential ocean waves developing in the neutron star. So whilst I was at NASA Goddard, I kind of branched off into X-ray astronomy And I worked very much at that time with data from the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer. Um, So this was a mission that launched in 1996, started operating at the very, very start of 1996, uh, ran for about 15 years in total, actually deorbited about a month ago, finally. It stopped operation a long time before that, um, but finally crashed back down to Earth. So we we shed a little tear for it then. Um, So I I trained to use data from the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer and to try and understand what we were observing. So that was a diversion into X-ray astronomy. Um, I then carried on doing more work on... It was nice to have data to work on. At that stage, the gravitational wave observations had not come along. Um, So I started then to work on on gamma-ray space telescope data as well for magnetic explosions. Um, And then I got a chance to do something rather different, which is that a a large group of scientists, based initially primarily in Europe, have started to think about what the next generation of X-ray space telescopes should look like. What should be the successor to the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer? Now, when you start planning a, a future space mission, you're talking about decades of timescale. Mm-hmm. Basically, you have to come up with all the technology that you want to work. You have to make your science case nice and strong. And then you have to win a launch slot. And that is extremely difficult to do because everyone wants to send things into space and rockets are expensive. So I was asked, I'm trying to think when it was now, gosh, probably about 2011 or 12 or so, of would I get involved in helping to develop the science case for one of these future space telescopes? And the reason I was asked was because I'd worked on theoretical modelling, I had some interest in nuclear physics, and also I'd worked with the X-ray data, so I had a kind of crossover between different fields. 
And I think I was told at the time it wouldn't be that much work, but it would be very interesting. It's certainly been interesting. It's been an awful lot of work. That was a complete lie. Um, so I started working with a large consortium of people trying to make a science case for a, a large area space telescope, uh, about a factor of 20 larger than the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer. Um, and that was a mission called LOFT, the Large Observatory for X-ray Timing. Okay. Um, competed for one of the European Space Agency launch slots. Um, didn't win, unfortunately. But that's the way of space missions. You, you propose and you propose again and you propose again. Um, our missions have now modified slightly, and now I'm involved in two potential missions. Um, one is the Enhanced X-ray Timing Polarimetry Mission. That's a joint mission between the Chinese Space Agency and the European astronomers as well. Um, and that, if successful, would launch in the mid-2020s. So we're working on the mission concept for that. Um, the other one is Strobex, which is a, a mission, mission uh, which is a NASA probe study. Um, okay. That would launch kind of around 2030 if it's selected. So we're still working on these ideas for a very large X-ray space telescope, um, trying to work out what science we want to do, what science we can do, and how do we make the best case for being given a rocket to put it on. Right, okay. It sounds like a lot of politics, among other things. It is. <laughs> the bureaucracy. It's, yeah. it's interesting because it's not just the pure science anymore. It's understanding the technology. Yep. It's talking to engineers. It's international relations. You know, you cannot make such an expensive mission without talking to other countries and figuring out different procedures. So, yeah, it's a lot broader than my basic astronomy training, but it's incredibly good fun. Yes, yes. Sounds it. Um, I, two things, then. Um, I'll come back to waves in the ocean because mm -hmm. that, that intrigued me. Um, but on the technology side, you talk about the science case. So you look at um, what ideas you want to explore, um, what results could potentially mean and how it would guide future research. But do you get involved with the design or the specification of the instrument as well? Or um, are you, do you say... I want to do this and then come back and tell me when you've designed it. It's a very iterative process. Um, so, yeah, ideally, we would say, yeah, this is what we want to do. Um, but actually, a lot of it is technology led. You know, this is what the instrumentation would now let us do. What would that let you do as a scientist? Um, so, again, we sit in the room together and we discuss, you know, what's technically feasible? What can they offer us in terms of technology development? And then what do we really need to be able to do the science that we want to do? So again, it's it's a totally different vocabulary for me. You know, sitting looking at a spacecraft design together, trying to work out, for example, can we have an extra panel of detectors, and then working out whether they, how much would that cost mm -hmm. to put it on? Would it fit inside the rocket anymore? Um, what are the electronics requirements? Where would it need to be launched? That that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a very very iterative process. We don't sit very separately. Right. Okay. Um. Uh, before I get back to the oceans and the waves, um, polarimetry. What did you mean by polarimetry? Okay, so polarimetry in the... So this is something that's been done a lot in, in other wavelengths, okay, for a long time. Polarimetry in the X-rays, it's a different way of looking at the X-ray radiation, okay? There has not been a polarimeter in X-ray launched yet. So this is a, so this, it's a technique that people have tried in other wavelengths, never tried in the X-ray. And it's basically getting more information about the X-ray photons than we've had already. Um, it tells us, for example, very interesting things about magnetic field configurations uh, in neutron stars. Now, NASA is going to be launching a mission called XPAY. Um, so XPAY will launch, I think, early 2020 sometime, and that will be the first X-ray polarimeter mission to go up. Okay. 
the enhanced X-ray tiling polarimeter that I'm working on would be about four times larger than that in terms of polarimetry area. Okay, so we're aiming to make the next generation, basically, of X-ray polarimeter. But it's, it's a whole new set of information. It tells you about the magnetic field geometry of neutron stars. It can tell you about the, the geometry of the system. So it gives you extra information. All very important stuff when you're trying to analyze you know, neutron stars and their equation of state. Before we get too far away, waves in the, the hydrogen ocean? I'm intrigued. Waves in the ocean. So we know that thermonuclear bursts are spotty. And this was one of the Rossi X-ray Time Explorer's biggest discoveries. Basically, in about the first or second week of observation, um, they observed the thermonuclear burst, this bright burst of X-rays from the surface. And when you look closely at the radiation, the, the big advantage of Rossi was it had very, very high time resolution. So you could snapshot very fast what was going on. And what they found is really fast variation. They see several hundred times a second, there's a little wiggle on top of the, on top of the X-ray light curve that you see. And they saw another thermonuclear burst from the same source, round about the same frequency seen in that source as well. Again, a few hundred hertz, several hundred times a second. Um, so basically what it looks like is that during the thermonuclear explosion, part of the star is getting hotter than the rest. And then what we're actually seeing is because of the rotation of the star, because it's spinning at several hundred times a second, mm -hmm. as it spins, this hot spot comes in and out of our line of sight, just like a pulsar. Um, and we see that as rapid variation. Okay. So, so now we know the spot is not completely fixed. It moves around a little bit because we see the frequency moving a little bit. Its amplitude is quite variable. And in some bursts, we don't see anything at all. So it can come and it can go. So we've been trying to work out since 1996 what is causing this. We don't have an answer yet. One of the possibilities is that as the thermonuclear explosion kicks off, a thermonuclear wave's basically a flame front spreads around the star across the surface that then sets up it, it bangs into itself on the far side of the star so you get this thermonuclear tsunami moving around the star smacks into itself on the other side and sets up a kind of large scale wave in the ocean of the neutron star that means half the star is a little bit hotter and half the star is a little bit colder and then that very very large cell pattern is what we see that's causing these wiggles in the light curve that's just really? one possibility, um, and it's one of the ones we're investigating because it explains very nicely some of the features that we see. Um, it's by no means the only model that we're testing. Okay. Um, one of the other things we're looking at, for example, is the idea that the ocean becomes convective. These are very, very energetic heating events, and you know if you put a pan of water on the stove, it's going to start convecting. Okay. So one of the possibilities is there are convective patterns forming, and we're seeing something more like the great red spot of Jupiter forming in the convective zones in the neutron star. So that's another possibility that we're looking at as well. Wow. And this, this is all on a very... If it's a neutron star, it's a body that's tens of kilometres potentially in diameter and a very long way away. Exactly. And so all we're seeing are these tiny patterns in this tiny little thin ocean on the outside layer. Right. OK. Wow. Fascinating. How do you know it's a neutron star? Are they all pulsars and we're detecting in that way or is it um, other methods of, of finding neutron stars? 
Um, so basically, because they have these thermonuclear bursts, so we, we can make some estimate of the size um, of the systems that we're dealing with. And again, the thermonuclear burst phenomenon is something that you have to have the surface of a neutron star to have. You need the strong gravity, you need the small size to get these bursts of the X-rays. Okay. So we are confident that if we see a thermonuclear burst, we are seeing a neutron star. You have no way of getting that in the right temperature if it's a white dwarf and you wouldn't see anything from a black hole because it has no surface to build up an ocean. Yep. Or nothing that comes out of the uh, event horizon yep. that we can detect. Okay. Um, so how far away are these objects? Or what's the closest Ooh, we've the closest. seen? So we're talking at least a kiloparsec, basically. So a parsec is about three and a half light years. Okay, so they're, they're quite a long way away compared to the radio pulsars where we know of many that are closer. Um, so the stars I am looking at are mostly between about one and about 10 kiloparsec away from Earth. So they're not nice and close, sadly. <laughs> Which would have been easier to, to look at and observe. Okay, right. Um, so we've talked about the satellites. We've talked a little bit about what you're going to talk about today um we're talking about surface from phenomena but you're saying that can also tell us about the interior of the neutron star yes that's right so so one of the big questions is what sits inside a neutron star it's not just neutrons of that we are very very confident um at best and well, what simplest if not at best it's a mixture of neutrons some fraction about five percent of protons basically some electrons in there as well but the densities are about getting up to 10 times the typical atomic nucleus. Um, so it's a far more neutron-rich mixture than we could ever make in a nucleus upon Earth that will be stable. And it's, it's the gravitational confinement that lets you keep things stable. Um, so at the very kind of simplest, we have neutrons and protons in a very, very unusual state of matter. Basically very cold, very high density. However, there are many more interesting possibilities. Um, one is that given this material is confined for a long time by gravity, you have time for weak interactions to operate as well. So basically you start to build up strange matter as well. Now that may take the form of things like hyperons. Um, a hyperon is a baryon, just like a neutron and a proton has three quarks, um, but at least one of those quarks is a strange quark rather than just an up or down quark. Okay, so normal matter is up or down. Normal matter is up or <coughs> down and a hyperon would have a strange quark in as well. Alternatively, the hyperons dissolve and you have some kind of deconfined quark mixture, up, down and strange quarks. And there are lots of other possibilities as well. So our nuclear physics colleagues are very creative are coming up with things that might exist at such high density and such temperatures if you can keep the material there for a long time. So we would like to be able to understand what is inside the core of neutron stars. So how do we do that? We need to relate the nuclear physics and our, un our uncertainty about the nuclear physics to things that we as astronomers can measure. So one of the things we know is that, okay, we, we have to build a stable star. So we have to balance the pressure forces of the material with gravity, okay? We have to do that in relativity because these are strong gravity mm -hmm. objects, but we know how to build a star, basically, theoretically. Um, so I can take my nuclear physics model and I can make a prediction, for example, for the, the mass and the radius of the star for a certain central density. So I can map my, my nuclear physics equations to perhaps a mass-radius relationship that I expect. So then you think, okay, I, I have some prediction for what the mass and the radius of this thing would be. So I need some way of measuring you know, the mass and the radius of the star. The radiation that we see from the surface basically is coming from the deep, deep inside the gravitational potential well of the neutron star. As it comes towards us, it's affected by relativity. 
Okay. Basically, it's got to escape from the gravitational potential well. So you have gravitational redshift, which depends on things like the mass and the radius. Um, it's going to be affected by the spin of the star. They're rotating several hundred times a second. That's an appreciable fraction of the speed of light. So we have special relativistic effects in there as well. So basically, if I take relativity as we understand it, and I say, all right, I have a spot of some kind on the surface of the star. So assuming I know what's going on on the surface, I can basically make a prediction for what I would see given a certain mass and radius, basically as a distant observer. And that is what we are trying to do. Basically, we're trying to sh take the information from the hotspots, basically that we see on the surface, and we're trying to map that back to gain information about the mass and radius, for example, of the star, of the gravitational field, and then we're trying to use that to learn about the nuclear physics inside. So we are using relativity as a tool. Basically, it's a beautiful okay. theory, but it's also a very useful thing. Yep. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Um, one thing that's just occurred to me, um, things, something seismologists do, for example, is to use explosions on the surface to explore um, the interior of the, of the Earth or of the, the body they're looking at. Is this a similar sort of concept? Can you, can you do the same kind of thing? So in principle, yes. Um, so there was a lot of excitement. In fact, actually, probably the last time I did the Jodcast, which is, you know, at least over a decade ago, was the idea that we'd seen for the first time seismic vibrations from a neutron star. Um, this is on a, a different type of neutron star, one that's not accreting, uh, a very, very highly magnetic class of neutron stars called magnetars. Mm -hmm. We know they have very, very large magnetic flares that we see in the gamma ray. Um, quite rare, the very largest events, but you also see smaller ones, just as you see smaller earthquakes. And for the first time, so about 2004-05, there was a giant flare, very, very large magnetic explosion at the end of 2004 from a magnetar. And for the first time in, in the light curve of that event, again, people saw high frequency vibrations. And the easiest interpretation that we come up with was that this magnetic explosion basically was setting the whole star vibrating. And we were seeing... Okay several different harmonics of the neutron star vibrating. And there was a lot of excitement from myself and my collaborators at the time that we could use this to figure out the composition inside. It's turned out to be much more complicated than we thought. The nuclear physics is important, but because what we're seeing is a magnetic field phenomenon, um, and these are strongly magnetized neutron stars, it turns out the magnetic field has a very large effect on the dynamics as well. Okay. Yep. We have very little idea what the magnetic field configuration of these stars is. And again, what you would see depends quite strongly on what you assume for the magnetic field. So I think right now it's telling us something very interesting, but isolating out what the nuclear physics is telling us compared to what the magnetic field physics is telling us has been very, very challenging to do. Anna, well, thank you very much for an interesting discussion today. And thanks again for taking the time to come and talk to us. I hope we see you again in Manchester very soon.